0: Dollar bill and the dollar bill blew away. But the sun is shining down on me at a channel stay yeah, yeah, That's why yeah, I'm telling you, I just wanna celebrate. celebrate. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yes, this bill. just turned into a uh Toyota commercial. <laughs> Isn't is that song not like from a car
2: commercial as well? It may be. <laughs> but it didn't start that way. That's rare earth. All right, and there's, a, and there's a reason for that song today, because we have a very special guest today who, in my opinion, on a daily basis, celebrates life.
1: Okay, okay. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. Um, I'm Yeye Martinez. This is Big Jeff. This is Beauty and the Beast Mode. Are we saying episode unknown?
2: Episode
1: 19,
2: baby.
1: 19, baby. We on track. back on track. Not only that, but we are over a thousand likes, which is pretty good, right?
2: We are over. We are almost eleven hundred listens and plays. Ah, uh, so not a thousand likes. No,
1: I was getting. I was getting really hyped.
2: Yeah, you called out like a few podcasts back that we're gonna get up to a thousand likes on our Facebook page, and like we're not even at two hundred. Uh,
1: Okay, Negative Nancy, but <laughs> I mean, this is a call. It, it's, a, it's a, a call to all the listeners to like the Facebook page, but you know, it's also, I guess, we're calling ourselves out for not promoting enough, huh? Call yourself out. I, my, I speak for myself. I speak for myself on that one, but again, here we are. We have another interview today. Um, this, this personally, to me, uh, is going to be a, a, a pretty uh, significant interview Um, The gentleman that we have here, Mr. James Herrera, is going to be talking it up with us about uh, so many different topics, man. Many. Uh, Fitness, uh, coaching, leadership. James, talk to us, man. How are you? Not doing too bad. I got in the water
0: this morning. Thank you guys for having me
1: out. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. When you say get on the water, what do you mean by that? How often do you get up and get on the water? Uh, I'd say four, four or five days a week. If I'm not in the water, if the wave conditions aren't great, then I'm in the gym doing something else. That sounds like it's uh, that's the place you go to uh, kind of center yourself.
0: Yeah, I'd say the outdoors are my happy place, no doubt. Yeah.
1: I can get my on. Speaking of playing outside, I want could you give us one childhood memory of you playing outside? Like something crazy. Is there anything there? Like jumping yeah. off of the monkey bars or something like that? I do
0: have a probably too young to actually remember it, although I've heard it so many times, uh, told by relatives and, and whatnot, that uh, it's pretty vivid memory, but anyways, a buddy of mine and I uh, were riding our bikes uh, off the roof and into the swimming pool. Uh, my parents had a pool uh, when I was about seven, eight years old, and uh, we figured out the roof was at the perfect angle to ride off into the pool, and we used to do some dumb, dumb shit when we were kids. Thank, thank God there was no cell phones. Uh, But anyways, we were riding off into the pool and had done it a couple of times and, you know, climbing the ladder and hoisting our heavy bikes up and just got tired. And uh, at one point, I came up short and I hit my back wheel on the pool deck and then smacked my face on the crossbar, knocked out my two front teeth, um... And at that point my mom happened to be looking out the window so I was I was half passed out in a bloody mess in the pool uh, my buddy dragged me out my mom came outside screaming and uh yeah the rest is history man. I broke my ankle and knocked out the two front
1: teeth so I spent the afternoon in the hospital That like that would absolutely be on YouTube right now if uh we if we had flip phones whatever iPhones back in the days Over a million likes for sure Definitely over a thousand (laughs) So James, we wanted to have you on today, man We know that uh, most people um, would call you an expert in in, uh, a few things At least we think Um, But could you give us an introduction of yourself Kind of just uh, maybe what you chose as a profession and then what we want to do is rewind and take it back to how we got there. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: so I, you know, I, I never knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. Uh, and I'd say I still put myself in that category. I'm still searching for those things that I love to do. Uh, I went to school uh, for a bit straight out of high school, and I just don't think I was ready for college at that point. Uh, so I, I dropped out or got helped out, uh, got put on suspension, uh, and eventually booted out of college for a little bit. Had to take a year of probation and uh, join the Army. Did that for a little bit, came back, and then uh, I just started taking classes, trying to figure out what it was I was going to do. I happened to take a psychology class and uh, really enjoyed the class and, and the professor got me real engaged and just figured out it was something I was passionate about. So I, I sort of went down that road. I thought I was going to be a, a counseling psychologist, um, went through a, an undergrad program, got into grad school in psychology, started doing some observation hours, and I realized I didn't want to hear people's problems every day for the rest of my life, uh, switched gears a little bit and got into exercise science because uh, sports had been a passion of mine my entire life. So, jumped from uh, an exercise science graduate degree into the coaching profession. Uh, started coaching.
1: When you say coaching, what do you what do you mean specifically? What kind of coaching?
0: So, I initially started doing strength and conditioning work there at the college. I was working with a lot of the team sports athletes: uh, basketball, volleyball, track and field. Uh, so, it was mostly strength and conditioning work. Eventually, I crossed over into the endurance world. Uh, moved to Colorado and started working with a number of cyclists on the road bikes, mountain bikes. Uh, they eventually segued into BMX coaching, and that wound me up at the Olympics uh, in London. I had a good time doing that. Along the way, I did a little bit of leadership work, uh, coaching executives, the Center for Creative Leadership, and ran... That
1: sound like a shout-out. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Shout-out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no shout-out, man. Um, So in any case, I I happened to run into an individual that is uh, one of our EDPs at the Wounded Warrior Project, where I work now. And uh, he happened to uh, drop an opportunity on me that I applied for and eventually got. And that's how I came to be here.
1: Cool. In my living room. Specifically in
0: this living
1: room. Now, uh, there there are a couple of... uh Topics that you brought up there that we definitely want to dive into a little bit deeper. Um, you talked about BMX. You talked about the executive coaching. Um, we want to talk more about those things. But like I said, we want to start from the humble beginnings. We want to start from your childhood. I know you talked about outdoors is, is like your solitude. That's your zen. Um, when you kind of discover that, how you discover that um, and because you, li- it seems, from what I know of you, that you like a lot of individual sports.
0: Yeah, you know, I grew up playing a number of different sports, uh, both individual and team. Uh, I, I started off boxing really, really young. I uh, started off swimming. Both of those are obviously individual. Um, did a lot of martial arts. And then my dad had a huge passion for football. Um, He was a a high school football player that had aspirations of playing in college. And he had a couple of knee surgeries that that precluded him from doing that. And so he stuck me in football when I was really young. Um, So I actually did value team sports a fair bit.
2: So you were saying that uh, you were playing all these sports and your dad stuck you into football. Did the other sports interest you? uh, Or was it where your dad kind of pushed you along to get involved with all the sports to begin with? You know, football, I think, well, I
0: grew up in West Texas, so I'll start there. Um, You know, football in West Texas is is almost like a
1: religion, so. It's like Friday. Is that Friday Night Lights? Was that Texas? Oh, man. So somebody played you in the movie. (laughs) I hope
0: it was somebody good. (laughs) <laughs> uh no so you know football
1: was always <laughs> typecasting
0: a- <laughs> Football is always a passion of. you know it was something that my dad loved and when the Dallas Cowboys were on TV on Monday night or Sunday you know it was like a big party at the house a lot of food of barbecue um Everything centered around the game, so I think I just gravitated towards it because it made my dad happy. I obviously knew he was into it. Um, he knew the football coaches and the, and the peewee leagues that were close by our house, and so he got me a spot on the team when I was six. Um, I think the age cutoff or the... You had to be eight years old, but he knew the coach, so they stuck me in there really young, and I, I got my ass handed to me for a couple of years. Um, and on the flip side, my grandfather was a professional boxer and uh so he started taking me to the boxing gym really young kind of pushing that on me and uh I, you know i started boxing at a really young age kind of the same thing i was six years old getting my ass kicked for a couple of years
1: so what's your heritage
0: uh hispanic so mom's side of the family is from spain dad's side is from mexico
1: so when your grandfather what did it, was there anybody like known that he was boxing, or did he have like a hundred boxing f- matches?
0: You know, I think he he had, from my recollection, he had something in the '70s as far as fights. I would say '75. Right. Um, he wound up. He won a national title. He did a couple of professional fights. Uh, he was actually in the army um, during World War II, but he was a boxing instructor in the army, so he never he never went overseas. Yeah
1: that imagine that if you had some hand-to-hand combat you've been jacking <laughs> folks up <laughs> so when did you go into boxing and martial arts and and why or how long did you stay in when did you stop those two particularly
0: son to learn how to fight so he stuck me in in boxing and martial arts and wrestling uh in judo from a really young age Uh, and it's just something that like I said you know I I got my butt kicked for a couple of years because I was a small kid on the block Uh, and eventually I started to pick it up um I'd say it was a place for me to take out my aggression um You know, my dad. My dad, again. You know, being the stereotypical machismo Hispanic, uh, he was. He used to rule with a strong hand at the house, uh, so I got my my fair share of beatings. And I think that being in all the fighting arts that I was in while I was growing up, that was my outlet. That was a way for me to sort of strike back because I obviously couldn't. I was too small to to uh, you know throw blows at my dad. So I was beating up on other kids.
1: <laughs> Take a breather, Jeff. Take a breather. <laughs> so not only did your dad um put you into those, and and you continued to want to learn, but it also sounded like I'm going to learn this because someday my pops and I are going to go toe to toe. Was there? Was there? Because I, I like. I'm, you know, coming from a Latino background as well, like, my dad was in the military, um, and it it was, like, he's the the head of the household, king of the house, like, what what he says goes, kind of, it's his way or the highway kind of thing, and so there was some frustration there for me growing up, but I knew that I never would want to fight him, but sometimes I felt like it, you know?
0: Hispanic father, (laughs) because they're they're all certainly not that way. Um, You know, I I would say my dad crossed the line a fair bit, uh, you know, from the the general discipline and spanking to things that I would call a little bit more in-depth. I used to go to school black and blue and whatnot, and I didn't really understand it at the time. Um, I just figured that's the way everybody grew up, but I, I did have a lot of anger in me, and so when I had the opportunity to, you know, hit bags or, go to classes and learn how to hit people. Uh, you know, later on in life, I figured out that that was uh, probably one of the best outlets that I had.
2: Are you an only child? Did you have any brothers, sisters?
0: No, I've got uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister. So I'm the oldest.
2: Nice. Um, how was your relationship with them growing up?
0: You know, there's a, there's a good size gap between me and my next brother, uh, seven years. So my mom had, uh, another child in between that about three years after me and he lived for about 12 hours. Um, he wound up being diagnosed with that infantile death syndrome. They didn't really have an explanation for it back then, so he, you know, he lived a total of 12 hours. My mom was pretty traumatized as a result of that, so it took him another four years to sort of come around, I think, psychologically for her to have another one. Um, so my brother, the next one, seven years younger than me, we didn't have much of a relationship for a while. Uh, we were just at a completely different place in life so it wasn 't until he was about high school that him and I started to connect a bit more
1: how would How would your siblings describe you well, pretty intense
0: uh, i guess i 'd say they, they definitely come to me for advice uh, periodically, so they, they sort of look to me as a leader um, i don 't know it 's a good question uh, they they Believe that I'm very independent. They know that I'm very strong-willed. Um, I, I, my youngest brother and I probably have the best connection of the bunch. Uh, him and I are much more alike. And so we've done a number of really long-distance running events and things like that together. So he he knows – they all know I'm athletic, um, as, were, as were the rest of them. But I, I think I've just uh, – cut from a slightly different stone than they are, uh, I push a little bit harder and a little bit longer than they tend to.
2: Do you feel that with what you went through uh, as a kid that that kind of gave you motivation or almost like a uh, like a point where you had to prove yourself?
0: Yeah, I think so. You know, I when I was young, I was always trying to please my dad and almost like this self-defeating prophecy I finally realized I never could. Um, He always demanded more expected more and it sounds like a good thing to a degree uh, but it was almost like a learned helplessness because I could never be good enough. I mean it's I'd I'd score three touchdowns in a game and I should have scored four if I you know had eight tackles I should have had ten. It was always something that I didn't do right.
2: So was there a point Where mentally, you said to yourself, obviously, everything I'm trying to do for him, and it's not working, to where you said, you know what, from this point on, I'm doing everything for myself instead of for somebody else?
0: Yeah, it definitely was a a mental shift. I mean, there was some kind of click in me when I was probably, I don't know, I'd say 11, 12 years old. I just realized I was never going to please him. Uh, I grew up pretty angry. Uh, you know, always fighting with other kids. Uh, I never went out and picked fights, but I was really quick to defend anybody that was getting picked on. Uh, so I never, I never went out and tried to hurt anybody, but I, like I said, I was quick to retaliate if I saw somebody being wrong. Uh, and I think that that was probably just, again, it was kind of an internal coping thing for me. I felt like I could never succeed, you know, with my dad, with his expectations. So I took it out on other people.
1: How... At what point did you start to kind of separate mentally from that to start becoming the man that you are now?
0: It was probably sometime in my 20s. Uh, I think I went through a lot of mental turmoil trying to figure it out, why the people that I trusted most, uh, my parents, I should have trusted most, my parents, I just, I couldn't. Um, And so... It was a mental struggle for a number of years. You know, sometime in my twenties, I just—I think I woke up one day and was just like, "Well, screw this. I got to move on, or you know, I'm going to die."
1: Uh, Where were you at that point in your life? What were you doing?
0: I think I had just gotten out of the army. Um, I, you know, again, I went into—I went into college straight out of high school. Mentally, I don't think I was ready. I know I wasn't, uh, obviously, by my grades. And uh, so I got a wake-up call. You know, I joined the Army, and that gave me a couple years to do a little bit of maturing. I came back and sort of got my shit together. I, you know, buckled down to school, started studying. Um, grades got a lot better, and things just got a lot more positive at that point. I, I think I made the shift then to trying to just start taking control and not blame anybody else.
1: So, in college, after the Army... What was your, what was your job in Army?
0: <laughs> <The> combat engineer. <laughs> <laughs> South of way. Shout out to my brother, Jody.
1: <laughs> shout outs. Give massive shout outs today. So get out of the Army, go back to college. Um, what would your college professors describe you as? How would they describe you at that point in your life?
0: But, uh second time around, you know i I sat at the front of the class I tape recorded all my lectures i you know I think I got straight A's from that point on. I might have gotten one b after that um, so i I would say they would describe me as disciplined um, they a handful of them might say they they thought I was smart <laughs> i don 't know about that, but um Yeah, so the one that I met, the psychology professor, she actually sort of pulled me in, took me under her wing, and she's the one that offered me a a spot in her lab as a resident assistant, so I did that for a couple years.
2: You mentioned that after getting out of the Army, that's kind of when you started getting your stuff together. Was there anything in particular, let's say while you were enlisted, that you think that kind of lit that spark, like, Okay, this is me changing my life now. You know, I think it was—it it truly
0: was just the time away, uh, time away, and time to think. And I also think I needed time to mature. Uh, I was just, you know, when while I was growing up, uh, the other thing I probably left out of the equation is I got married at a really young age, uh, I was seventeen years old, and I, I still remember uh, taking it to the dinner table and, and dropping that bomb
1: had to run away from home because my dad chased me out of the house with a baseball bat and, when you when you told him you were married oh yeah well when I told him I was I was going to get married he chased me out
0: of the house with a bat <laughs> so it, all of that sort of led to me trying to you know find a place to get away and at the time the army seemed like a place to do it I needed a job uh, I needed a roof over my head and I needed to get the hell out of dodge so
2: so kind of your dad didn't agree with you getting married then? Uh, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> was there... 17? No, not so much. Is that what it was, your age? Uh, you know, he, he had my, my future written a little bit
0: differently. I was going to play college football. I was going to become an accountant or a lawyer or some other bullshit. Um, and so just the deviation from the plan was what infuriated him, I think, the most.
2: So early, you had mentioned that kind of like at 11, 12 years of age that you kind of had that clarity and said, I'm no longer going to do things for my dad. So is, I mean, that's really young to kind of have that uh, epiphany, you know, what was your mindset like then, as opposed to like all the other kids around you, like,
0: I I think you're so young at that point. You're you're trying to make sense out of a lot of things. I mean, and I would say that for any kid that's that age, regardless of whether you you come from a an abusive relationship uh, in your household or not, you're just trying to figure a lot of things out. And so I I know that I recognize that my thought processes were a fair bit different than other kids. Um, I had a really really high risk taking. The time I was really young, and so I would have teachers and relatives frequently tell me that there was something wrong with me because I was always that kid jumping off the you know the jungle gym and getting hurt and you know climbing to the top of the, the school. Um, so I was trying to figure out like what the hell was wrong with me. And like I said, 11 or 12 years old, I went through this period where I figured I couldn't please my dad. But I got to the point where I realized I was just who I was. There wasn't really anything wrong with me. Nothing was broken. I did well in school. I had friends. I did well in sports. Um, so yeah, I, something just woke up in me and decided to take control.
1: Climbing to the top of the school was that like on a dare, or did you have like a a flag, a Mexican flag, you were trying to put <laughs> at the top of the school? Like what was that about, <laughs> if you can recall? No,
0: side of the school that the janitors used to get up there and fix the air conditioners and stuff and uh i figured out that i could get up there without anybody seeing me at one point and i used to just go hide up there whenever we'd have recess or lunch or even before school i used to just hang out up there and
1: just solitude get away from things hide from what
0: start to realize a little bit more about personality and I am a bit more introverted than extroverted. So time away from people I just helps to recharge my batteries. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like to go out for runs and like to go out and surf and things like that. It just gives me time,
1: peace and quietness to be with my thoughts. So when you start to transition from college into your professional career, what is your first role? How did you land it? And what did you have your eyes set on from there?
0: So it's a bit interesting. I, I honestly, I, I didn't know what I was gonna do with my degrees. I, I was following passion when I went to school. Uh, you know, Psychology was really the first thing that clicked with me. It was something that I, that I really enjoyed. So I decided to go down that road um, and then when I realized that being a counseling psychologist wasn't necessarily something that I wanted to do, shifting gears into exercise science seemed like just a natural progression or extension of my, my childhood. You know, I love being outside. I love sports. I love pushing myself. And the idea that I could either learn more about that for me or in helping other people, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. So I, I followed that path. Um, I think I've always taken the approach as an adult to have passion in the things that I'm doing. And then the career or the jobs are just going to sort themselves out. And I've been fortunate that things have sort of fallen into my lap. Uh, You know, first strength coaching job that I got at the college, that was just as a result of being there as a former athlete. Uh, And then, you know, taking classes there in the physiology department. For a period of time, I thought I might get into law enforcement. So I took the entrance exams for the FBI, the DEA, the Sheriff's Department, the Police Department, and the Fire Department, all within, like, a two-month span. Uh, the Police and Sheriff's Department nixed me...
2: Once they saw your record. <laughs> that's another story. But, <laughs> but, and where were you living at that point? That was El
0: Paso, time. Texas. Okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. So... That actually wasn't my record because the, the times that I'd been in jail were more in Mexico than
1: anywhere else. Um, that's that's for another episode. <laughs> sure,
0: no problem. Uh, well, you know, I, lived, I grew up in El Paso, so the Mexican border is literally—you could hit it, you know—you could hit it with a rock. So in high school, you know, whoever had a car, we used to just go park on the U.S. side of the bridge and walk across the street, and then there, you know, it was just a strip of bars and other establishments that that you can pop
1: in and out of well without getting into the nitty-gritty details like let's talk about that then because that's that's a a a huge piece that we don't want to leave out when you talk about somebody's transition from where where they started to where they are now so were you how much of a troublemaker were you uh
0: probably a fair bit you know like i said I i had i grew up with a really short fuse and so while i didn't On people, I was always really quick to retaliate. I got in a lot of fights, uh, my fair share for sure, and then some. Um, You know, frequently at lunchtime, there was five or six people pulling me off of some other kid uh, that had picked on someone else. When we'd uh, high school time, when we'd go across the bridge and go into Juarez, Mexico. Uh, there was always trouble to get into, and I never seemed to be too far from it. So spent my fair share of nights in a, in a Mexican jail, eating bologna sandwiches and beans and Kool-Aid for breakfast. Uh, you know, having other, other kids' parents come pick me up in the morning.
1: Was there ever a moment during that time where it could have went entirely differently for you?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt, man. I, I, I hung out with a lot of kids that, you know, wound up in jail um, you know, some other kids that uh, probably didn't make it, and so definitely could have gone south really quickly. Uh, I had a, I had a handful of bad influences, and I'm not going to blame that on anybody but myself, because I, I think I was attracted to that lifestyle, uh, just because it, it sort of promoted more aggression, or it allowed me an outlet for my aggression, uh, and I... It may have been getting married so young and having a child and then having to grow up and mature that quickly that pulled me in the other direction.
1: And in all all seriousness, uh, were there gangs around you and were they trying to influence you to be in a gang? Was there any thought of that?
0: contractor, and he went through a period where he, he did pretty well, so he moved us out of the, the area of town that there was a lot of gangs. but I, I seemed to sniff my way back into it uh, because I was I was always at a boxing just,
1: gym. Just ch- keep on trying to go back to 8 Mile, Eminem, huh?
0: Keeping <laughs> <laughs> it real, man. Um, no, going up in the boxing gym, you know, the, the, the gym was in a really, really poor area of town. So I was always there, you know, hanging out with other kids who were were young boxers and boxers aren't the most upstanding members of society. Uh, So it was really easy to immerse myself in that if I wanted to.
1: All right. So back (laughs) back to college, back to the professional setting. You get this opportunity as a strength coach initially. Then where do you set your sights on?
0: training systems. And at the time, this guy, Chris Carmichael, had been promoting himself as Lance Armstrong's coach, and he was offering coaching internships. Uh, A buddy of mine was working there as one of his initial coaches, and so I made a connection there and uh, wound up going out for a visit over a weekend and just fell in love with Colorado. I had been there Couple times before and the size of the mountains and and just the scenery around there always impressed me So I dropped everything I was doing packed up the car moved to Colorado took a coaching internship for like a thousand bucks a month And then decided that I was gonna take a gamble on it
2: I'm gonna rewind a moment because you said before that in you kind of were chasing your passion When it came to college And then jobs And I feel that I know in my younger days And even today There's such a divide Between parents Or people Parents who tell their kids To go where the money is You know um, As opposed to Them saying Find out what you love doing And then go after that. Um, What was the difference for you? Why choose passion over getting paid?
0: I had to be a doctor, had to be a lawyer, I had to be an accountant, I had to be in some profession that was going to be lucrative, uh, and that was sort of the, uh, the life they had written out for me, and I had made that disconnect and come back, and I was just kind of doing things for myself, and at the time, you know, my family, and I just followed my passions, and money became much less important, uh, it was much more gratifying to me to do things that I really enjoyed doing. So that's, I think that's what allowed me to sort of take a gamble on coaching because I I knew full well, unless I was coaching in the NFL or the NBA, I wasn't going to get paid. Uh, You know, so coaching cyclists, you know, endurance athletes, runners, triathletes, and some of the other things that I did, It, it wasn't so much about the money, but I loved every day of what I was doing.
1: If you talk about your parents not being an influence at that point in time for you, who were the people that were saying, James, do this, or James, you should seek this out, or James, you're great at this? Good question.
0: And I mean, I, you know, I, I have a lot of internal drive, that's for sure. Um, I, I certainly can't take all the credit. I mean, there, there's been a handful of people that have been super influential in my life. Uh, you know, my wife back then was super supportive of me doing whatever I wanted more than her telling me, hey, you should go do this, I think it was her just stepping back and saying, do what you want to do, uh, just letting that door be open without any kind of barriers or saying, hey, you've got to provide, or hey, you've got to stay here and do this or that. Um, I had a, a friend that was sort of a cycling mentor of mine back in El Paso. He was probably 30 years older than I was, um, but he's the one that got me into road cycling and started to tell me that... I'd be a good coach. Uh, we go out on bike rides, and I, I sort of picked things up really quickly and was coaching other cyclists. Um, and so he sort of steered me in that particular direction. So I, I've had a couple of really good influences.
2: Was there ever a point where you took what you went through as a kid and said, you know, other than making that change initially, that That it gave you the fuel to say, I'm just going to prove all them wrong?
0: Yeah, I I think for the longest time, and it it probably lasted into my 30s, I just had a lot of aggression. And I think I was always living and trying to prove that I could do things my way, Uh, that I was going to continue to follow my passions, I was going to work in a a profession that wasn't the most conventional nine to five type of job you know I wasn't going to wear a suit and tie to work Uh, I wasn't necessarily going to have you know a house on Park Avenue but I was definitely going to go to work every day and love what I was doing
1: so what was the first gig that you got that you were like that you felt like you made it
0: friends in a one-bedroom apartment, but coaching athletes, I think that was the first time that I realized this is what I need to be doing, and it was sort of a magic intersection of all the knowledge that I had acquired in school, you know, with the physiology and anatomy and psychology, and then just my personality, uh, my experiences through my childhood, My athleticism, it it was just that magic intersection of everything. And I said, this is it. This is the road that I need to continue to go
1: down. So you chase that path and eventually wind up at the Olympics. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, so while I was there at at Carmichael, um, a handful of BMX athletes. I mean, I started racing BMX when I was really young as well. Uh, That's that's the first cycling discipline that most kids will get in. Uh, And so I had a BMX background, and while I was there, a couple of BMX athletes sought me out uh, for coaching services. A handful of years down the road, we find out that BMX has been voted into the Beijing Olympics, and this is about 2004, 2005, and the Olympics are coming up in 2008. So another friend of mine that raced against, and knew that I had been coaching some mountain bike athletes, uh, becomes the first director of BMX programming, and they start to assemble a team of individuals that is going to contribute to the curriculum and the processes that USA Cycling is going to assemble this BMX program and, and figure out how they're going to go to the Olympics. And so I got a phone call said, hey, do you want to be part of this committee? Um signed on to do that, and then shortly after that, down the road, I became the national team coach. How old were you
1: at that time? Uh, I was about 35, 36. Yeah. What was that experience like being at the Olympics? Because I saw your pretty little outfit. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> the out, the, aren't the most flashy. That was, a, that was a, the, um, the polo year. Was that the, yeah. the Ralph Lauren outfits? Yeah.
0: <laughs> that spectacle you happen to see was the uh the closing ceremony outfit for the London Games.
2: See, I haven't seen it, but it must be better than the Windbreaker outfit. The full windbreaker
0: outfit. I got some ice cream. I got some ice cream. All white. <laughs> and I looked out the window And I saw 3500 other US and I was like,
1: one the so while you were at the Olympics, did you get to uh, go out and experience some of the other events and and what did you well, first of all, kind of what great feats did you see there? And then secondly, what did you take away from the Olympics?
0: were very different. Uh, Beijing we had three athletes that medaled. Uh, we got uh male silver and bronze and then a female silver medal. And so that was fifty percent of the medal count for BMX. So that was a resounding success from that perspective. Uh, we went to London and hey,
1: really could you could you clarify a little bit what they were doing with BMX? Was it racing? Was it racing, yes yeah. so right.
0: BMX racing? There's uh, there's a big star round aways connected by three turns and it's the fastest one to the finish line you got eight eight athletes uh lined up on a gate that are all racing one another
1: are they still doing bmx in the olympics right now
0: yep so the team just went to their in processing and clothing issue yesterday in houston and they're headed over to rio this week
1: nice very nice
0: yeah so it you know it's uh it's a spectacle of a sporting event and i mean it's you know the biggest sporting event you've ever seen. Um, I can't even—I can't recall the number of athletes and staff that are there, but it's freaking huge. I mean, it's three and a half weeks long. They're—they're they're cycling athletes and staff in and out so that they can fit in the dorm facilities that they've got built up there in the Olympic Village. Um, some of the coolest things that I saw were actually going into the weight rooms early morning to get my own personal workout in because i see teams and coaches from other countries, um, and as a—you know—as a physiologist and as a coach. Watching the techniques that other people use uh, was always super fascinating to me. Uh, you know, you'd see Usain Bolt going for a jog around the Olympic Village. And so there you'd see the Olympic Dream Team, you know, the basketball players walking around. And so you see a lot of really high-profile athletes. Um, but just the athleticism that you see in every discipline that you go uh, and witness is just something to behold. I mean, it's something different than watching it on TV to see it live and in
1: person. When you saw some of that happening in the training room, uh, what were some of the differences in philosophy? And did you have an opportunity to to talk to anybody about those differences? And
0: Some of the warm-ups and some of the workouts they were doing, they were just very unconventional from our perspective. Um, And I think we, you know, obviously we we live here in the U.S. and we've got this very U.S.-centric attitude and style towards strength and conditioning or or towards athletics. Um, And so I, you know, I went up and talked to a handful of these coaches asking why they did those things and why, you know, whatever it is they were doing. And... One of the things I remember that I took away, the, the, the coach uh, from an Eastern Bloc country, it, it might have been Czech Republic. I can't remember exactly where, but he said, you know, you guys are, are always into working out. And his thought process, he explained it a little bit more. He said there's a big difference between working out and training. Um, you know, Americans tend to just work out a lot, and it's almost like you beat yourself into submission in an exercise routine, whereas other countries that train more smartly are actually training specifically to accomplish a goal. So his thought process was that we were really infatuated with working ourselves to the point of exhaustion during workouts, uh, whereas they took a much more methodical approach to training.
2: So hearing that, what do you think is the better way? So what it clicks with me is the movie Miracle about the US hockey team, Olympic hockey team, where they just trained and trained and trained like till they couldn't go anymore, but which gave them the stamina during the real events to keep going on. Oh yeah,
1: here we go. <laughs> you just open that can
2: of worms. I go on for days on this.
0: Elements, the power elements. And so once you're coaching athletes at that level, they all have talent. Uh, You know, they all clearly have genetics and they've worked hard enough to get to that level. And so, you know, I I may have a different conversation if I was talking about working with high school athletes or junior high or, or, you know, grade school athletes versus Olympians. But everybody that's Olympic caliber has. Superhuman genetics, they've all trained to a certain degree to get to that point. And so now it's really about fine tuning and honing that 1% that's going to take them from being middle of a pack to being a world champion. And so, you know, there's not a specific answer I can give you to say, well, you know, obviously the, the Miracle on Ice, they were successful uh, in many ways. And that, that coaching strategy, it's old school to kind of run athletes into the ground, but it, it works for a particular outcome. And sometimes you need that. Sometimes athletes need to know that they can do more than they think they can do. And that's a psychological hurdle that you have to overcome. So I think in today's training, uh, certainly taking on more volume or more load to show yourself that you can do more than you think you can is absolutely necessary.
2: Do you feel that there's a difference between the actual training and the mental aspect of it so like you just said that obviously they need to train all athletes need to train to a certain degree you were mentioning the one percent of honing that exact for and that's different for every single person obviously um but the mental aspect of it to me and I have no business saying anything about it but I hear about runners who run marathons and say at some point they hit that wall, and then mentally they have to get themselves going in order to get past that. So in your opinion, how important is that mental aspect of it as well as the training?
0: Yeah, so that's another one I could talk for hours about. Um, you know, the simplest way that I could put it, it meant mental strength, resiliency, toughness in sports is incredibly Component of success. Um, and, you know, much like genetics for athleticism, there is a huge genetic predisposition to have that, I'll call it a killer instinct in sports. Um, you know, some people have it and some people don't. Now, you can go see this on the playground if you watch five-year-olds chasing a soccer ball. There's always one kid that's going to be running around with his hair on fire to get to the ball first. Um, and then there's going to be a handful of kids that are down playing in the sand, you know. Picking flowers. Yeah, picking flowers, doing some other stuff. And, you know, watch, go watch any peewee game of any variety, and you'll see the same thing. There's a handful of kids that are just going to turn themselves inside out, you know, hair on fire to get there first, to do the thing they need to do. Uh, and you see the same thing when you get to the higher levels. You can't, in in my estimation and in my experience, You can't teach someone how to have that how to have that killer instinct you can explain it uh, and people get it they know it when they see it but when push comes to shove you know and you're you're in the thick of a battle in an event you're either going to go for it or you're not and only that individual really knows whether they they hit the brakes they backed off or they made the you know the mental decision um most times I would say you're not even making a decision. When you have the genetics and you have that killer instinct, you're just on autopilot. So the great ones have that, that extra 1% of mental toughness uh, that I think is, is not really something that's coachable. Uh, when you hear great coaches talk about athletes that they've coached, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the NBA, and so I, I used to listen to interviews with, like, Phil Jackson talking about Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. And guys like that, I mean, they just got that one thing that you can't coach. You know, it's just an internal drive that's different than anybody else.
1: And I think this is a a great segue point to talk about uh, your work with executives as a a leadership coach as well. But before we get there, I wanted to ask you the two raddest things that you've seen on a BMX bike, both from accomplishing what it was that they wanted to accomplish and then, like, completely wiping out. (laughs) And I say Rad. Remember that movie Rad? There was a, a I, I bunch. That movie that
0: they had a they had the milk bowl <laughs> that They were jumping out of that movie that movie was a shit back then. Um,
1: oh man, I, they they did a dance routine on bikes to Send me an angel. Me way back.
0: Um you know I, I I would say some of the coolest stuff I've seen in BMX is not Racing—it's some of the ramp stuff that I think uh, someone like Dave Mira uh, was a pioneer of doing, you know, multiple spins and you know backflips and 720s and things like that on ramps in the X Games. I think he's still today uh, one of the the winningest X Games gold medalists. Unfortunately, he he passed away uh, last year, but I think he he took BMX to a whole other level I and mean, he gave it a visibility that. Hadn't seen. Um, in terms of crashes, man, he he had some pretty good crashes. But uh, I was I saw a kid flatline uh, at our World Cup race in Chula Vista, the Olympic Training Center, center, a couple of years back. Uh, Dutch kid crashed with a bunch of other people, hit the ground, and wound up flatlining and getting hella backed out. And I didn't think this kid was gonna make it. I and mean, it was one of the ugliest crashes I've ever seen. Uh, thankfully he did and he was back racing the next season
1: that's phenomenal that, I think that speaks to some of that the mental component that you talked about
0: yeah I mean it, you know, athletes, athletes in, in BMX the tracks have gotten so big over the years compared to what I used to race on when I was a kid Uh, you just got to have an uncanny risk-taking ability to uh, race on a a track of that magnitude. I mean, you're hitting 40 miles an hour at the bottom of the start ramp. There's eight guys elbow to elbow, uh, and only one of them is going to get into that first turn first, and you're taking a whole lot of risk.
2: So I just wanted to ask you something before we moved on to the leadership portion of your life. Um, With the physical health and wellness and working out and you having somewhat of a background with psychology in school. So the three of us know that there are 22 veterans a day who take their lives. So in the aspect of working out, being healthy, um, and just that overall well-being, how important is that physical health and wellness aspect um, to a veteran in particular in regards to mental health.
0: So that that regular daily physical activity, uh, as mild as it might be, is tremendously important for mental health. Uh, I know that psychologists prescribe physical activity either in conjunction with or in lieu of medications to stabilize uh, people's moods. So I think it's a huge thing that we have to take into consideration when we're trying to get veterans healthy.
2: So... I know we're just three guys sitting around, two microphones here. Um, But do... (laughs) Like the VA system. I know that normally they're quick to just throw meds at veterans. Um, And I know you were saying some doctors prescribe exercise. Um, Do you think that there will ever be a day where, let's say, the VA especially puts more weight onto the exercise for mental health?
0: You know, I'd like to hope so. I really would like to hope so. And, I I mean, I think it's a problem across, I'd say, the entire medical profession in treating the symptom and not the problem. So I I say that, you know, talk about heart disease. uh, You know, doctors are quick to prescribe medication versus saying, hey, you know, let's step back and look at your diet. Let's look at your physical activity habits. And maybe the individual does need the medications, but I think attacking it from both angles is definitely going to be a much more productive outcome. Uh, But I've I've got a number of doctor friends. uh, I've asked, every time I meet a new doctor and I, I... get to know them to the point where I can ask this question, Uh, I always do, and I I frequently will ask, you know, how much nutrition or exercise education was given to them along the way of getting their MD? Most of them say zero, and so even though it's sort of common knowledge that eating better and moving more is going to be tremendously helpful in a number of, of different physical maladies... Uh, It's ignored by the medical profession. So, you know, in answer to your question, I I would love to say that the VA would be progressive and step up and incorporate exercise education or nutrition education. I know that they do have some components. Uh, I've looked at their website a couple different times. So I know there's, there's elements there. But I certainly think it's something that needs to be coupled with any kind of medication when you're talking about mental health.
2: So it's funny, like, even in my own life, like, I'm way overweight, oh. and...
0: No, come on, yeah.
2: <laughs> 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 I almost, for a second, that sounded like, no, really, <laughs> like, duh. <laughs> Thanks a lot, James. Uh, but, so, like, my wife was, like, you should go for the weight loss surgery, like the bariatric surgery, like the sleeve or the gastric bypass or something yeah. like that, which even though I've been a big boy for years, like I refuse to do, I don't want to do it because in my head and just so you know, Jason, yeah, yeah, knows this Jason. Um, years ago I played like every sport in high school and I was super fit, weightlifting team and everything else. Um, And I got like this just over the years. Um, But in my head, when she says something like that, I'm just like, I know what I have to do. I just need to do it. And it's always exercise and eat right. It's very simple. So like besides doctors who prescribe stuff like that, it's up to people also to kind of open their eyes, get off the couch and, and just say, this is what I need to do. let's keep let's keep it real let's keep it as
1: real as possible right like we talk about barriers and challenges and and what's what's self-inflicted versus okay this person needs to go seek out like legit professional help
0: you know i mean obesity is a massive epidemic um you know be it with veterans or be it with the the U.S. population or the worldwide population. I mean, I, you know, every time I look at the numbers, uh, the CDC puts out the, the color-coded U.S. map of how obese the U.S. is getting, and the, the color-coding changes just about every year.
1: To the point where they've even created more categories.
0: Oh, yeah, there's more categories yeah. now. I mean, it, it used to be just like four categories, and now there's six now because we just keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, I've heard stories about... You know, mega corporations like Disney having to shut down rides. This is a true story. So the it's a small world ride <laughs> over at Disneyland that I think everybody's been on at some point in their life. Um, you know, if you're sitting on these little boats going through these channels, and all these kids are singing "It's a Small World" in their in their native language. Scary looking dolls too. Had, yeah. No, it, <laughs> 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 they had to close that ride down to retool the whole thing because people were sinking the boats because back when they built the thing the average american male was about 175 pounds and i think the average american female was like 125 um we're a bit bigger than that now so you know plane seats seem smaller and they've got to retool these things so obesity is a huge epidemic, and there's there's a big psychological component to that. You know, yeah, you're talking about keeping it real, and it's like, yeah, you you got to be self motivated. You've got to be at a state of readiness in order to want to make that change, uh, and it's tough, man. It's tough. You know, if if we had the solution, we wouldn't have the problem that we have. I mean, you can you can blame industry, you can blame fatty foods, you can blame all the you know the new chemical snacks that are out there and and the overabundance of food that we have access to but really i mean people have to step back and and figure out what it's going to take for them to be in that state of readiness and there, there's no magic pill for it i I certainly don't have the solution i wish i did
1: right so we talk about choices and now you are you're vegan right i am so at what point did you decide, okay, I want to change my lifestyle, and why?
0: Yeah, so the way it happened was, and just so we're clear, I'm not the vegan that stands on the soapbox and tells everybody else to be vegan, because I, I could give two shits how anybody else eats. I mean, as long as they're healthy, like, I don't, I don't proselytize my diet on anybody. It, it just happens to work for me. And so... But
1: let me... It, so you say you could give two shits about how anybody eats, but how does that relate to a client you might have?
0: Uh, well, I'll say it this way. I, I want people to eat healthy. I want people to eat in a way that's conducive for what they want to do in terms of their goals. Um, that, that might be a better statement than saying I don't give a shit because I actually do give a shit. Uh, and so the way it happened for me was I, I had studied nutrition for athletes is you know, sports nutrition and it was a typical old school sports nutrition you know take the skin off your chicken breast eat tuna uh, you know rice veggies fruits and vegetables things like that so that that's just a way that I ate for years and years drank gallons of milk uh, because it was supposed to be nature's superfood and then I started doing some work at the Center for Creative Leadership and a friend of mine there that was a head of our exercise or fitness for leadership department says hey you know all this stuff about food for athletes. I need you to learn about the sort of 50 year old demographic, 50 year old executive demographic. That's who we see here. Those are the individuals that are in these senior level leadership positions. And so I start reading about more of the nutrition for disease prevention or disease treatment. So heart disease, diabetes, cancer, things like that. And over and over again, I keep seeing plant-based diet. You know, the longest living cultures in the world, people that regularly live to be 100 years of age and and older are eating more plant-based diets. So one day, I just decided to give it a shot. You know, I I cleaned out my fridge and said, I'm going to give this a go. Uh, I went vegetarian for about a week, so I was still eating eggs and drinking milk. And then I read another book that was saying, well, maybe you should try to not drink milk. And so then I uh, kind of ripped the Band-Aid off and, and went from there. And I, I slept better. I trimmed down. My exercise routines were better. Uh, you know, it just happened to work for me. And so I've sort of been on that bandwagon for the last, I want to say, 12 years, 13 years.
1: How does somebody rip the Band-Aid off? Like what, does it, what do you think it takes for them to be like, I need to rip this Band-Aid off and just go all in with this?
0: make up my mind to do something. It's like black and white. Like I don't, I don't wean my way into it. I go head first. Uh, when it comes to training, when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to work or anything else that I do, that's just always been my personality. Um, I know other people have a harder time with that strategy. Uh, they, they want to take smaller steps, you know. So as opposed to let's say, let me eliminate all the shitty food from my diet, to say, well, let me, let me trim it down a little bit. Let me cut the serving size of these cookies or this cake or, you know, all this extra fat and sugar and salt that I'm taking into my body. Let me just cut it down. Um, I think when you do that, it, it prolongs the addiction. Uh, it gives you an out. Yeah, it definitely gives you an out. You know, now it, I will say that everybody's different. And so if we talk about nutrition, now we could, we could go on for hours about this and, and getting into the psychology of weight loss. It is very different based on the individual and where they're at. Uh, I know people that have really fast metabolisms that can eat a lot of sweets, but they exercise their asses off, and so they look pretty damn good. And so when you look at yourself in the mirror, that's typically how people judge their, their state of fitness or you know how they're looking and feeling. Uh, I know other folks that, that look at a piece of chocolate the wrong way and gain five pounds, and so they've got to be a little more vigilant. About what they're bringing into their body. And so, whenever I've coached anybody on nutrition, it's really taken an individualized approach. It's like, what's your your personal chemistry? Uh, how does it react to the intake of food? And what does your psychology make up? You know, how are you dealing with coping mechanisms of overeating or, you know, eating too late at night or, you know, the different things that will cause obesity?
1: Mm-hmm. So, this this part of the story fascinates me. Um, hearing hearing your background and and probably knowing a little bit more about your background than than we've put out today, but you getting to be a coach for executive leaders, senior leaders of corporations at Center for Creative Leadership, how you got there, and not a, not a, like what fascinates me about that is not only your background but as as a Latino male, seeing you in that position being able to coach executive leaders and seniors at corporate uh, senior leaders at corporations in my opinion is uh as a minority like not seeing a lot of that uh is fascinating to me so how were you perceived and what what was your approach to working with these senior leaders and, and what did you see there
0: Flag officers in the military, so generals and admirals from every branch of the U.S. military, uh, you know CEOs and other C-level employees. Occasionally, get some executive vice presidents. Once in a while, you get a director of some organization. But there was some, you know, some Fortune 500 cats that are coming through the doors, and so they're brilliant business minds, brilliant military leaders that were coming through there. Everybody that teaches there. Whatever category they're teaching is a thought leader in whatever that that particular discipline is. So, if it's personality inventories, or if it's some other uh, communication strategy, or in my case, a you know, fitness for leadership component, they're they're all pretty bright minds in their respective disciplines. Um, I think I was pretty well respected just because of my knowledge base, you know, the education, but then also life experiences. Uh, whenever I am coaching someone on anything, I, I dive headfirst into the material. So I make sure that I know everything there is that I can possibly know about it, uh, to the extent that I was studying all the other diets that were out there to be able to respond to questions on whether it was Atkins or South Beach or Paleo or Keto or whatever the latest craze was, um, really diving into all that material. And so what I saw was demographic was, you know, as you can expect, you know, something between the ages of like 40 and 55 on average. Um, It was predominantly white uh, and there was predominantly more males than females, I would say there was a good portion of them that were either diabetic or pre-diabetic. They had heart disease or the onsets
2: of heart
1: disease. Knowingly, pre-diabetic. Knowingly diabetic. Uh, I would always
0: be the the grim reaper in introducing the notion that someone was pre-diabetic because they didn't know. Uh, and we would do we would do blood screenings on day one. And so, unfortunately, you know, I had the. Uh, opportunity, I guess, to tell a couple of people, a number of people, that they were pre-diabetic or they were you know, they crossed the line into full blown diabetes and just didn't know it.
2: And that was due to weight? Uh, A lot of that was due to weight,
0: I would say. The majority of it was, but it was a a function of their nutritional strategy and lack of physical activity. Uh, A bunch of these folks were you know, again, if I'm going to categorize that entire group majority of them were overweight, uh, either overweight, obese, or, or beyond that, if you go by the, the classification scales, um, and the majority of them did not exercise. Once in a while, we'd get, you know, we get a jogger in the group, we'd get a runner, uh, we'd get a cyclist, but the majority of folks didn't exercise.
1: So from where you came to being there, how did you approach being around these kind of leaders?
0: I was speaking about something that despite their despite their status in the business world or despite their status in the military, I was speaking on a topic that I had a high degree of fluency. And so standing up in front of a classroom and talking about physical fitness strategies, uh, nutrition strategies, things like that, or disease, I, I would consider myself well-versed. And so that plus the confidence that I typically carry in most things that I do, it wasn't really a problem for me to get up there. Uh, I think that all of the individuals that I interacted with, they, they respond to confidence. You know, they're good at what they do. And so regardless of the fact that I wasn't a thought leader in business or I wasn't a military officer, they respected me because of what I knew in, in my particular
1: discipline. What surprised you about working with this level of individual?
0: I think the thing that surprised me the most was that they have many of the attributes that the elite athletes that i worked with have. It's just directed in a completely different place. Uh, You know, those thought leaders in business, they... They have the same level of drive and attention to detail that many of the athletes that I worked with over the years had. They just directed it into bettering their organization, bettering their military team, uh, or making more money. You know, whereas my athletes were definitely into winning medals or or perfecting their level of performance on a field.
1: So we can imagine that working with... uh those executive leaders and CEOs and what have you that everybody's probably envisioning that they're go, go, go. They're working, you know, 80 plus hours a week. What was the missing component for them that ultimately made them get there to have to listen to you?
0: So I'm pinching people's fat, I'm measuring their waist, I'm taking a blood draw, and so I'm collecting all this data, as the data is being processed, they're going out on hikes or runs and different physical activity things in the mornings, and so they're figuring out that waking up early and moving is actually making them feel better the ones that don't do this on a regular basis. Uh, By the time I get their blood work and all the data compiled, I do this lecture for them. Uh, It was midweek, so it was on a Wednesday. And so I do this three hour module on how all of the components of physical activity and healthy eating are going to impact their leadership. By that point, they've had three days of activity, they're feeling better, their energy levels are higher, they're thinking more clearly. And as I'm presenting the research, they're starting to connect the dots a little bit more.
2: Was there any follow-up ever? So when, you, when they would take the course, was there any follow-up down the road to see how they were doing?
0: Yeah, so I, I often would wind up coaching a number of these individuals post-program. And so the ones that had the greatest success were the ones that actually adhered to implementing more exercise practices and better eating habits. You know, kind of spoiler alert for CCL on the last day of class, they have everyone write a letter to themselves that they're going to receive in three months' time. And as they're going through this process, they're talking about all the things that should be the most important in their lives. And most of them recognize that they've sacrificed their families and their health at the expense of making money and the bottom line for their organizations. And so it's a, it's a pretty harsh realization to come to. Um, a lot of them break down. Uh, they do make a lot of promises about taking control and getting those elements of their lives back on track. And so I think going through that entire week and the way the schedule set up, they do have some aha moments. And so then you, you add on the coaching beyond that and we were able to get a lot of them into a really good place.
1: So I I gather that the people listening are picking up on your expertise and would like to know what it takes. Like, what are the what are the golden nuggets for some of these people without prescribing anything? Like, how can how does somebody even start to think about it? How does somebody that's thinking about it uh, move forward with it and how how does that lifestyle change start to happen for people? Well, I think the first thing is you, you got to
0: wake up and decide that you give a shit. Um, you know, you really have to have take self ownership, and you really have to take the responsibility and decide this is something that I value and that I want to do. Uh, second thing I would say is you need some mode of accountability. Uh, some people will use a journal and the simple act of writing things down on a daily basis and being accountable to themselves is helpful Uh, engaging a partner whether it's a a spouse you know significant other a friend somebody that's going to keep you accountable meet you outside for a walk meet you at the gym uh, that's going to check up on you know whether it's eating habits or whatever the case may be Uh, I think that accountability is huge and that that will help to drive some motivation um, you know, beyond that, I think educating yourself is, is always a positive thing. And so digging a little bit more into what makes up a good diet, even though I, you know, when I ask most people to describe a good diet, most people can tell me, you know, eat more fruits and vegetables, don't eat a lot of crap. Um, it's really that simple. Move more, burn more calories than you take in. It, it's pretty simple in that regard. But I think informing yourself a little bit more about strategies at work about the right kind of foods, uh, that's also helpful.
1: Fitness, nutrition, recovery, rest, uh, what's the most important component? Hands down nutrition.
0: You know, you can't, I've seen a number of people exercise and again, this is all individual, but I've seen a number of people exercise till they're blue in the face um, and not make the progress that they wanna make with their body composition. Uh, because they don't change their diets enough to support, you know, the, the weight change. Um, the other thing I would say is on the exercise front, people do not work out hard enough. Uh, a lot of people, as and I think this goes especially for the aging population, this is something else that I used to talk to the, uh, the executives about, is as we've gotten older, We play less. We play less sports. We don't jump as much. We don't sprint as much. We tend to do everything a lot slower. Some of that because the body's getting creakier or it's getting heavier, Um, but we're not doing the higher intensity exercise that we used to do when we were younger, when we played team sports and uh, just at a younger age in general. So I would say that Given the appropriate, you know, say medical clearance, or you know, your doctor's not saying that you're going to have a a heart explosion when you go out and try to run sprints, but trying to move at a at a higher pace is something that people need to learn to be comfortable with. And as much as I hate on CrossFit, I think that's one thing that CrossFit and the HIT training and just the metabolic, you know, focus that I think the exercise world has seen in the last five years or so has promoted more intensity in exercise for adults which I
1: think is a good thing. And I, I wasn't going to go there. I was going <laughs> to save that for a completely different uh, episode but what with yeah, me with on the other <laughs> <laughs> like dueling pianos what with so much out there how does somebody decide what to do?
0: second thing is I would say that you know you're talking about deciding what to do um, if you don't have the background in physical fitness or proper form things like that then getting instruction is obviously a good thing uh, it's motivating to go to a class it's, it's motivating in a mode of accountability to have someone helping you go through the process so I think things like Orange Theory and CrossFit and you know some of the other group exercise modalities, title boxing, MMA workouts, those can all be great because they've got an instructor that's taking you through the process and, and teaching you and coaching you on what to do. And you've got the group atmosphere that's you know, sort of high motivation for most
1: people. Yeah, and <laughs> we could talk. We could talk. We're we're we've been in the same ministry. Obviously, you have uh, many more years than I do. Um, and Not many, many, more. <laughs> many many more so many more <laughs> but we can definitely talk about this some more and uh you know I think we're just scratching the surface on the the knowledge your knowledge base and I think bringing you back to uh go a little bit deeper into the nutrition component uh maybe a little bit deeper into the to the actual exercise component would be beneficial for a lot of our listeners um and I mean just anybody in general so Happy to do it anytime. absolutely jeff you got something on that screen there buddy I oh yeah
2: so when we interview peeps we like to run down and do a little uh questionnaire towards the end of the podcast so uh if you'd be up for it I'm just going to ask you some questions.
1: You, uh, you're up for it because you're here, and uh, you have no you choice.
2: Be in. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you could just give a one-word answer if you want, or expand on it uh, to explain your answer. Uh, what is your favorite word?
0: Integrity. I go with integrity.
2: What is your least favorite word? What turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally?
0: Being outside, man. Being in the ocean and being in the mountains.
2: What turns you off?
0: Negative people. Uh, People that don't have self-awareness or take responsibility for their actions. People that don't work hard.
2: What is your favorite curse word? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> what sound or noise do you love
0: uh, waves crashing hands down love the sound of waves
2: what sound or noise do you hate
0: uh, old school alarm clocks man Those, like, <laughs> old ass ones of the alarm clock with like the red digital the <clears throat> okay that shit used to scare the hell out
2: of me <laughs> what profession other than you own other than your own would you like to attempt
0: you know i i always wish that i would have studied music more and been able to been a performer on stage i think i would have been like a badass rock guitarist
2: (laughs) nice what profession would you not like to do Border Patrol is a good
0: one. Actually, I for the border patrol. <laughs> Actually yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. I, I did apply for the Border Patrol, and it was kind of funny because my best friend in high school and I, when I was going through that law enforcement phase, he's the one that has the idea. It's like, oh, let's apply for the Border Patrol. And uh, this is kind of funny. So we, we both apply, we go through the hiring process, uh, we both get appointments to the academy. And... Uh, long story short I I declined and he accepted and he was super pissed because he had this idea that we were going to go to the academy together and all this other stuff but I remember growing up my dad was a a building contractor as was my grandfather and uh, you know back in the day there was a lot of undocumented employees here in the U.S. there probably still is in some in some industries but I literally remember the Border Patrol driving up to my dad's job sites and people scattering. Um, so oddly enough, I, I grew up with a bit of a distaste for the Border Patrol uh, because all these guys that were working for my dad were sort of friends of mine. Uh, they were almost like uncles to me because uh, I knew them all so well. So it was kind of weird. I mean, it's not like I – not to get political and you know, get right. into discussing whether I, I agree with undocumented employees being in the U.S., but – yeah, when I was growing up, I just didn't really like him. But, yeah, I left my buddy high and dry, and so now he's, he's been a Border Patrol <laughs> agent for, like, the last 15 years.
2: <laughs> Is he close to retirement?
0: Shit, you know, he might be. Yeah, he's probably got another five years, and uh, he'll, hit, he'll hit 20. Because he, he did that at the same time I took the internship to go jump into coaching. So, but I, I would also say that I, I would – I would argue that I love what I'm doing, or I have loved what I've been doing most every day of the week. Um, And I do know from going on some ride-alongs with some of the Border Patrol agents that that work is is rough. I mean, they see a lot of things that are not not super great.
2: Right, right. Uh, Last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm going to say that Adam Silva has already validated that heaven exists, <laughs> uh, so I'll take his word for it. Because, so you man, listen to the podcast. I did listen nice. to the podcast, man, and, and I, I trust him implicitly. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and agree with him on that one. And uh, man, if God tells me that there's a killer right point break uh, it's out, you know, off to the side, the waves are breaking really nice, then I will be pumped.
2: Nice.
1: So. Before we get into the takeaways, what, what's on the horizon for James Herrera?
0: You know, right now, um, I would say that I've been living in Jacksonville since January, as you guys know, um, came out here to, to work at headquarters and, and transforming our, our physical health and wellness team and offerings into the absolute best business unit that I can. Uh, being able to do that collectively with our leadership team, that's one of the things that I think is, is really on the forefront of my brain. If I have to say something's on my horizon. Um, uh, you know, Again, I'm, I'm always kind of looking for, for what's out there for me personally, professionally, uh, just keeping my passions alive. And so I've been looking into some other things to do to keep me busy around town when I'm not at work. Um, I saw a, a skydiving group that I might jump into. Uh, I just bought a new stand-up paddle surf board that I, I've been cutting around on. It's been really fun, and I I didn't stand up paddle a lot when I was in San Diego, but that's one of those things that's that's been jazzing me up. The waves are a little smaller here, so that that board gets around pretty good. But those are some of the things I've been thinking about.
1: Yeah, and we didn't get we didn't I don't think we touched on it at all. But the the ultra endurance piece, the running. The, uh, what, is it, what is the event that you have coming up in September?
0: <laughs> it's not, well, it is an event, but it's not an official, you know, they're going to put a bib on me or anything like that. But uh, some, of, uh, some of our Wounded Warrior Project colleagues and I are going to run across the Grand Canyon and back uh, in late September. So that's a 50-mile run with a whole lot of elevation uh, gain and loss uh, going down into that big hole in the ground. So that's uh, probably about seven or eight of us that are going to be out there. And
1: if that doesn't validate the mental fortitude that James has, then I, I don't know what else we could say
2: that does. So aside from what you've mentioned already, what you've done in the past, skydiving coming up, the Grand Canyon run, anything related to work, anything related to hobbies, what is one thing if you, kind of like a bucket list item. So if you have one thing that is a must do for you, what would that be?
0: You know, I think the the thing that I didn't talk about really much at all was I did mention that I got married really young. Um, I don't know, I can't recall if I mentioned that I had a son but him and I had have gone or had gone astray uh, had sort of not had a connection for a number of years and so I think for me you know if I have to say bucket list being able to reestablish a connection with him and be a better father than I could when I was 17 I think that for me is probably the thing that's the biggest on my bucket list <sighs>
1: Gosh darn it, James! Now this is another can of worms that we could discuss, right? Um, because the when you mentioned that, it's it's interesting to talk about the. We, we can you want to pause? You got a PP break? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Go ahead for a PP break, and we'll continue to talk. <laughs> we'll keep yapping. So one of the things that I think is interesting is that he he talks about the relationship with his son and the dynamic that he had with his father and how what are the similarities from when he was a child to now as a father if that carried over and and how he can kind of reestablish this connection with his son what do you think
2: i think that that's a huge thing um so he's going from kind of that abusive uh household and and life growing up uh to where now he wasn't able being so young uh so Mr. Herrera's back so <laughs> I mean, we could hold this for another podcast or, or go into it today.
1: Well, we can, we can touch on it. Yeah, so touch on it. We we're
2: just talking about your son and stuff. So at what age were you? And I know we didn't go into the situation. If you don't want to, we can skip it, too. Um, so you said that you got married when you were 17 years old. Uh, how old were you when you, your son was born?
0: Three days after my seventeenth birthday, and he was born while I was seventeen. He was born about, I want to say, six months after that. Yeah, six months after we got married. So I was seventeen when he was born.
2: Okay. And how? So for how long were your wife and yourself together? And
0: it it, it was a bit on and off. (laughs) Um, It. It was a lot of years, but it was, there, was a, there was a number of breaks in between. When I was in the Army, um, we were not together, um, and a handful of others. But him and I sort of disconnected, I think, when he went into high school. Uh, it was actually an interesting phenomenon because he, he was a brilliant kid. I mean, he was, in, he was on the honor roll every year. Uh, he was an artist. He was into music super, super bright kid, and I, I remember thinking, man, this kid's going to wind up going to Harvard and put me in the poorhouse uh, because he got every award at school you could possibly get. Math, science, reading, the whole bit. Wow. Um, great athlete. And then, uh, so in seventh grade, the teachers told us that he'd already done all the eighth grade work. He'd already They'd already put him up into the other classes because he would get in trouble. I mean, he'd get bored and stick him up into the higher level classes and so they said hey we think he should he should just skip eighth grade he just needs to take a placement test so at the time you know we thought okay well we got we got like doogie hauser on our hands man this kid's going to go to college when he's super young so tested out of eighth grade went jump straight from seventh into high school you know in retrospect he didn't have the maturity to be at a high school uh with older kids you know guys are driving drinking things like that and you know he was he must have been 13 like a young 13 when he went to high school um and that's when things just started to go south I mean he stopped going to class he figured out nobody really cared whether he went or not uh you know at the time my wife and I never checked on him we because we always assumed he'd gotten great grades and so then once I figured out he was flunking out of school um know at the time i handled it the way i knew how i did a a lot of yelling (laughs) Mm. and uh yelling and grounding and i'm gonna take this away from you take that away from you you know trying to be the best parent you know how to do at the time and we just kept distancing ourselves further and further so we went through a really really long patch um hadn't really had much of a connection at all and this last couple of months actually uh it it was exercise and him jumping into weightlifting and physical fitness that sort of opened this small door. And he started asking me for advice on how to do different things in the weight room and whatnot. So we're, we're working on repairing the relationship. Uh, I know it's going to be a long process because it's been a while since we've had one. So
2: That's good, though. How uh, prior to him going to high school and, and that stuff happening – um, how was your relationship with him prior to that compared to, let's say, your relationship with your father growing up? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I
0: swore when I was growing up was that as soon as I had a child, I was never going to lay a hand on him. Uh, that was the one thing that I was just absolutely committed to. Like, I'm not going to spank my kid. Uh, and it was beyond that. It wasn't so much spanking. It was because I, I did definitely spank him, but it wasn't, uh, I wasn't going to abuse my child. I should say it that way. Um, And I only, I think I only almost crossed the line once when he was in high school and, you know, he started being old enough to yell back at me uh, that I felt like I might lose my temper. Uh, Didn't happen, thankfully. But, uh, you know, we had a really good relationship while he was growing up. Um, He was a great kid, super happy, did a lot of sports. Uh, He... Got to a point in like junior high where he wanted to do his own thing, uh, meaning he didn't want to do the sports that dad did. I was a little bit overzealous in my coaching, um, you know, wanting him to be better and trying to push him and things like that. And he started doing sports that were a little bit different than what I was doing just to sort of find his own way.
2: Was there a part of you or a fear within you when he went to high school and things started changing that you kind of looked at yourself and? not looked at yourself but looked at what he was doing which might have kind of reminded you of yourself was there a fear there like oh my gosh
0: yeah I I remember distinctly reflecting and thinking shit did I turn into my dad you know did I drive him away um and so I did go through a whole lot of reflection trying to figure out how can I undo this how can I make it better and uh I think because a lot of the things that his mom and I were going through at the time that, that probably drove more of a wedge between him and I, um, he was always a little bit closer to her. And I think because her and I were going through some stuff that he sided with her more, uh, you know, and I would expect that, uh, you know, from a, from a young male to defend his mom.
1: What would the discussion be like if you two were to sit down and have coffee tomorrow morning?
0: We'd be talking about rock climbing and weightlifting. Um, Those are the two things that I went and visited Colorado a couple weeks back, and I still text him about, you know, some of those things. But those are the two things that I think opened the door for us. He got into – so he he gained a bunch of weight. Um, He got into the culinary profession, like – not, not something I would have ever anticipated, but got into the culinary profession and gained a bunch of weight. And then I don't know if it was a girl or he just woke up one day and said, I need to get my ass in shape. Uh, but started playing basketball with some friends, going to the gym. Next thing I know he's going running, um, is looking pretty fit. And so then he wanted to sort of take his exercise to the next level, which is when he started talking to me about it. Um, was able to help him get a gym membership. He started doing yoga, and then he started wanting to get into rock climbing, which is something I'd done a bunch of when I was living out in Colorado. And so we sort of have a a mutual set of discussions now. And so those are some of the things that we've been talking about.
1: So we all have kids, and we know how difficult it is uh, to get the point across to them on, on several issues. What would be the one thing that you would tell them at this coffee table that you feel would Absolutely stick with him based on your personal life and your relationship with
0: him. Follow your passions. You know, whether it's work or play, uh, do things that you're absolutely passionate about, surround yourself with people that make you better, and cut ties with anything that brings any negativity into your life, whether it's a person, a job, living location, uh, you know, whatever that is, just surround yourself with positivity and passion.
1: Very good. So, James, before we get out of here, uh, we got a couple of things. We have takeaways. You want to do, do uh beast mode moment and Jeff's joint first? All right. So we got the beast mode moment, and then we got Jeff's joint to kind of bring it all together, right? So from this conversation, what I've taken away as your beast mode moment today is, even in the most turbulent times, we can find calmness. So when I, when I hear you talk about being out on the water or going outdoors and hearing your early life and to where you are now, and you connecting to those things and finding peace in those things and calmness in those things um, just made me think of that. That even in, in trying times when it's difficult, that you can find something that you own and connect to that can actually bring you peace and calmness. That is today's Peace Mode Moment, Jeff. Listen, listen, keep talking, right? Because every time we get to this segment, Jeff's joint brings it all together puts a nice little bow on this, makes it look like a nicely packaged piece of cake. Jeff has to say, keep talking so I can get queued up. Because we don't have the appropriate equipment to just push a button (laughs) (laughs) for the song that Jeff wants. But we will someday. We're working on that. We just need to get more likes and more listens and more subscribers. And then um, we'll be able to just push that button one day. DJ, but for right now, what what? So you talked about music, James, that you would want to be a musician, possibly. What would be your instrument? Guitar. Yeah, I think
0: guitar.
1: Yeah. Thing I like what would your outfit look like, though? Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. that's I'd more important. So <laughs> <laughs> fi- I could see you in some black five-elevens with a skin tight black cut off sleeve <laughs> <laughs> shirt <laughs> with like a choke chain necklace <laughs> look you would look like uh like what's the guy they Daughtry? <laughs> like a mix between Daughtry and disturbed on stage with a with a Bruce Springsteen soul patch <laughs> i think that's pretty good right i get the Jeff, are you ready? Ladies and gentlemen, brought to you by Big Jeff, Jeff's Joint. Talk about it, Jeff. And and if you can, talk about those lyrics. Because I want to know what he said.
2: Uh the song is One World by the group Anthrax. And you you got me nervous for a moment, yeah, yeah. <laughs> While I was playing that, because it looked like you were about to have a stroke when <laughs> when I played it.
1: Well, I couldn't tell if he was saying white power.
2: So <laughs> Do you think I would play something that said white that power?
1: I wouldn't, but I couldn't I discern. Couldn't he
2: said one world. One world? Yes.
1: And why did you pick that song?
2: So, first off, I know that James kind of digs the heavy metal and anthrax in particular. Uh, I had heard him say that Slayer and anthrax. But if I played Slayer, you definitely would have stroked out. So. <laughs> uh, but the song is One World, Welcome to It, One World, Don't Abuse It, One World, Live Out Your Life. So, just when I think of James and the stories that he's shared today, uh, I definitely, just like the opening song today, you know, I just want to celebrate. Like, this man, from his beginnings and up until now, lives his life every single day, and he doesn't let a moment pass him up. So, there you go. Awesome, brother. Thanks for for tying
1: that all together and playing a song that made sense and not what I thought it was. (laughs) He's, Jeff is so mad at me right now. He thinks I just crapped all over his Jeff's joint. <laughs> no, I, know when comes,
2: I know when it comes to the heavy metal that you are not a fan and uh, it kind of freaks you out a little bit.
1: I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting better. Nice. I'm getting better. James, we like to finish with takeaways. One or two takeaways from this podcast, um, that you either picked up in this conversation or you wanted to, uh, throw out there to the listeners.
0: You know, one of my takeaways is just surround yourself with good people. Um, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of great people in my life and the opportunity to to come and sit down and rap with you guys has been phenomenal. You know, I both, uh, both of you guys, I mean, I've, I've derived a lot of positive energy from you. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, I've worked with you for the past year and a half, so, uh, you know, we've had the opportunity to interact a whole bunch, and just the, the chance to sit down and engage with two really cool guys that I respect, uh, that, that's a big takeaway for me. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is, like, just talking about my life, like, I don't think I'm anybody special. I never have. Um, you know, my, my goal is always just to, to do what I love and to help people, um, I think those are the, the two things that I try to get up and do every day. Uh, you know, I want to get up and get on the water and get out and, you know, do something physically active. That always stokes me out. I want to teach and help as many people as I can. And so I, I try to remind myself that that's, that's something that just is in the, in the fabric of who I am. Um, so when I talk about my life, I think those are the biggest takeaways that I have. Love what you do and
1: help people. My takeaways would be when you said follow your passions. Um, a lot of people out there, they do chase the dollar, you know, and uh, and then maybe might have some regrets uh, on not following through with their passions. So being able to watch you uh, and, f- and know about your career and, and listen to your story, that was a, a huge takeaway for me. And then the second thing was uh, that you're a giver, that, Every person I know that you interact with and wants to learn a new skill or wants to know about something, you never hesitate to take time or make time to go out on the water with them. go go paddleboarding with them, go rock climbing with them, talk to them about exercise and nutrition. Uh, so being a giver um, I think also is what makes your life very fruitful as well and then lastly, huge takeaways on on the on the fitness components and the nutrition components to anybody out there that was listening. Um, when you talk about nutrition being the most important component, uh, I like hear that, take that knowledge and start to apply it. And uh, whether it be peeling the bandaid off or little by little, I think that was huge and, and uh, a takeaway for our listeners.
2: My takeaways today, uh, the first one, which just resonates with me, uh, with James sitting here and every interview that we have done so far on Beauty and the Beast Mode is how humble these men have been who sit down with us because all of them say the same thing. I'm nobody special but, you know, and and then they tell a little bit about themselves or, or some of their stories, you know. They are such good men and good people uh, that it's just really an honor to be hanging with you right now, brother. Uh, The second thing is James uh, earlier stating earlier on the podcast that uh, stop doing things for other people. At some point, you have to start doing things for yourself. Uh, And the third and last one is that you need to sue Johnny Knoxville, brother for all your stunts they bit that jackass stuff off of you way long ago so i wasn't gonna say it you-
1: <laughs> james thank you for coming on man i love you for being here brother i love you in general man as a, as a man and, and as a mentor as well um we hope you come back because we want to keep picking your brain and uh, we know that there's just a tremendous amount of knowledge in there that our listeners would really, really benefit from. So we hope that you come back. Uh, maybe we'll bring you in here with some other people at the same time. So uh, we appreciate you pre- back anytime. Cool, man, cool. We appreciate you being here. I am Jay Martinez. This is Big Jeff. Be good to one another. See you next time. Peace. See ya.